Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, why is the ballet world so overwhelmingly white? Misty Copeland is a ballerina. She made history in 2015 when she became the first black woman to be named principal dancer in the American Ballet Theatre, one of the most famous dance companies in the world. She first tied on her ballet shoes at the age of 13 for a performance in the Christmas classic The Nutcracker. It was the first time in my life that I felt like I was a part of something that was bigger than me, that I was a part of something that was consistent um, in my life, that um, was beautiful, that made me feel strong and that I had a voice. Copeland says that ballet saved her from a difficult childhood and now at 38, she's well known across the main stages all around the world, recognisable for that striking athleticism. She talks about wanting respect that an athlete gets, and she leapt to fame when she worked with President Obama on his fitness policies. I'll be asking Misty Copeland if she was ever denied roles because of her skin colour and what she makes of the black and white portrayal of Swan Lake. And a testing question as we revisit cultural works of yore. Are there ballets she would now ban from performance? If so, which would get the chop. Misty Copeland, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, I'd like to take you back this time of year to your first ever ballet performance. You were, I believe, about 13 years old. And it was The Nutcracker. And by my powers of deduction, I'm guessing this might have been a Christmas performance. So what did it feel like to dance that at the time. Take us back to the 13-year-old you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I had started dancing, gosh, maybe six or seven months before I had taken my first ballet class on a basketball court. And I had joined the ballet studio on full scholarship. And um, the teacher, Cynthia Bradley, um, she cast me as Clara after only, I think, seven months of training. And at the time, I really didn't know what any of the the roles meant, you know, the kind of hierarchy in ballet. I I didn't really understand any of it. I just knew that I absolutely loved what I was doing. It was the first time in my life that I felt like I was a part of something that was bigger than me, that I was a part of something that um, was consistent um, in my life, that um, was beautiful, that made me feel strong, and that I had a voice. And I just remember 
doing so much research, <laughs> as strange as that sounds, with so little experience in the ballet world, um, I became obsessed with this, um, I believe it was made for TV version of the Nutcracker that um, American Ballet Theater did in the 80s. And it was Gelsey Kirkland and Mikhail Baryshnikov. And it was Mikhail Baryshnikov's version. And I studied every little blink of an eye that Gelsey Kirkland made and the hairstyle and everything. And that's where I developed my first interpretation of Clara in The Nutcracker. And you hadn't been dancing very long at all. I mean, you were in a good quality ballet school, San Pedro City Ballet, but you hadn't been at it for for years and years. So to what extent did you kind of expedite your own training to take on quite a demanding role. You know, this is not, not a role that you would usually suggest uh, as yeah. a, a starter one. I mean, did you feel any fear about that? Or perhaps you didn't know enough to be scared? I didn't know enough to be scared, which is why I think I progressed so rapidly. My teacher, she did throw the word around prodigy often, but I didn't really understand what that meant. For the first time in my life, there was a sense of security and safety around me that I felt by being a part of the ballet world. My home environment was really chaotic. There was a lot of moving around, there was abuse. So ballet gave me this beautiful bubble that I was existing in. That, you know, the worries of having to go on stage and perform and, and remember an entire ballet, that was nothing compared to the struggles I had already experienced it by 13 years, but I I caught on quickly. Um, and this wasn't the typical Clara role, which you know you think of the famous Balanchine version, the New York City ballet version, where Clara is a young girl, she wears ballet slippers, and she pretty much dances around in the first act. No, I was in point shoes, and I was doing pas de deux, and I was doing solo variations in in the version that my school did. So it wasn't just the cute Clara role. You know, I had a really meaty technical dance role, but I grew in leaps and bounds. You know, the following year I was cast as the Sugar Plump Fairy, which is ultimately like the ballerina role in the Nutcracker. So I moved pretty rapidly, but taking on a role that was deep in character development, I think did so much for the ballerina that I am today, because I wasn't just taking on, you know, an abstract ballet for the first ballet I was doing, but I really had to think about my feelings and the acting and, and bring the ballet together. And it's interesting that you've said and you've reflected a bit more what you've told me so far, that ballet saved you, that you'd had a very difficult childhood up to that point. What do you think it saved you from? Ah. Uh. I was someone who was very sensitive to the surroundings that I was in. I was resilient, but it made me extremely closed off and introverted and it stunted my growth in every way possible. And ballet was the one thing that brought me out, that allowed me to do better in school. It showed me empathy. It showed me sympathy. It opened me up as a human being. And I think that the arts do this in general for people, which is why I think it's so vital for the arts to be, it should be a part of our school curriculum, um, no matter what the art form is. But it awakens things in your cognitive skills that I don't think anything else truly can. And that's what it did for me. This intensity that you were then flung into of your training and your dedication 
obviously something spark had been lit in, in you. What did that do to your relations with your family? Because families in very stressful situations, and you've you've alluded to also damaging situations for a child to abuse, or to a sense that you didn't have a place in the world. Did it help you figure that out? Or in a sense, did it pull you away from that and into a new family of dance? A little bit of both. (laughs) I think that it gave me a better understanding of emotions. You know, it allowed me to start to develop and become a whole person, which allowed me to have more understanding of the circumstances that I'm in and that um, this ballet opportunity and being a part of this world and whatever the future could present for me gave me this sense of control and strength and freedom that I'd never possessed before. And I think whereas before ballet, I felt that um, my surroundings and my upbringing defined me and shaped what was possible. And when once my eyes were opened and I started to develop because of ballet, it allowed me to see that my upbringing shouldn't define me and that if I'm given the opportunity and if I have the support that anything was possible and it showed me that for the first time. It was an interesting path for my family's understanding of what was going on. You know, uh, we were all learning together. They were very supportive. My mother was supportive. My five siblings, I'm one of six children, um, were all supportive. Uh, You know, to this day, they are so impressed by all of the success, but they still just see me as, you know, they would call me like a little peanut. (laughs) I was so small. But I think what's been most impressive to them is the person I've developed into because of ballet, being able to express myself vocally and verbally um, is something that they never imagined I'd be able to do. I'm I'm reflecting that the the many sort of gorgeous and floral nicknames given to great ballerinas to be stuck with little peanut. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's meant with love, isn't it? When it comes from the family, what else can you say? (laughs) Yes. You've written a book uh, for children called Bunheads, that great visual depiction there of ballerines very upright ballet dancers with little bun on the top of their heads also slightly an ironic description of of people devoted to ballet and it's inspired by your own experiences in ballet as a, a child but you didn't only want to dance ballet and across your career I think you've been one of the more protean dancers now some people in ballet think that's that's kind of hard to do you know once you've danced with prince in his music video as, as you've done that you've kind of crossed a rubicon away from the purity of ballet what do you make of that you know i've i've never looked at my path and my journey as following in anyone else's footsteps from starting at a late age and to being African-American, you know, to being the only African-American female dancer at American Ballet Theater for the first 11 years of my career. Because I started late, having just a late start to every step of my career, being promoted to soloist at a late age, being promoted to principal dancer at 32, I mean, that's like ancient in the ballet world. So I thought that this opportunity with Prince would expose me as a black ballerina to his audience. What's been so incredible is to see that proven true. I don't even know how many years later now since I worked with him, 2000, 
gosh, it's been like over 10 years or something. To this day, people who've come and support the ballet, they say, I'd never been to a ballet and I found out about you when I saw you dance at Madison Square Garden with Prince and now I support American Ballet Theater. Of course, there are those doubts and and the chatter in the background about whether I was a purist and respecting the, the ballet culture. But, you know, the more people that you allow in, the more it will grow and be rich there will be so many more opportunities. And I think that whenever we've been given opportunities to bring ballet to mainstream, it's not been depicted in an authentic way. You know, for the most part, films and and television and media and the way ballet is depicted is often very negative. You know, it, it pits dancers against each other, especially young women. And we have eating disorders. It's, you know, all of these negative tropes that have not been my experience. And with Bunheads, I really wanted to show um, the beautiful relationships that start to develop in the ballet studio from a young age. Uh, That's the beauty, I think, of starting with young people and showing them the possibilities and that they should be a part of, of an art form that has often been closed to so many. 11 years being the only person of colour in the company you were dancing in and on that track to be principal dancer and to be at the top um, of your craft. How did that feel? And at what point did you ever ask yourself, if you did, why is this the case? Why am I the rarity here? I was kind of sheltered from the realities of the ballet world. And my teacher did that purposefully so that I could focus on my training so that I wasn't a 13-year-old girl worried about the color of my skin and and that adding to the stresses of what already exists for a young dancer or for a dancer period. Um, So when I became a professional, uh, it was a shock. It was a shock to my system. I mean, of course, I was very cognizant, aware of the fact that I am a black woman. Uh, My mother raised me, though I am biracial, I am black, Italian, and German. Both of my parents are are of of mixed race. Um, But she raised my siblings and I to understand that as a, a black American, when we leave our home, we're going to be viewed as black. It doesn't matter how much black we have in us. That's how we are going to be seen and treated. That was understood. But as a dancer, I was just Misty, this dancer. So I come to ABT and, you know, there were a handful of black male dancers that would come and go. And um, and I was always curious as to why, why I saw them come and go as they did and that I was the only woman that was there. I always thought to myself, there's no way that I am the best. There's no way that I am the first to come around that was capable. So that's when I started to kind of dig in deeper and do research on my heritage as a Black person, as a Black American, especially in the ballet culture. And that's when I stumbled upon so many incredible dancers that exist and had fruitful careers as far as their, you know, within that time, as far as it could take them. You know, I think of Raven Wilkinson and Janet Collins, but until you're given a true opportunity, which Kevin McKenzie at American Ballet Theater eventually gave to me, you're not going to be written in history books as a black dancer. And that's something I want to change. Did you ever feel that you were held back from roles by either by your colour or by the perception of your colour? Absolutely, without a doubt. You know, and that's what's so hard for me because people look at me and um, and will say, you know, well, their so, their dancers are so much darker than you. Like, imagine their path. And then I always, off, you know, I say that, um, you know, it has to start somewhere. That there's discrimination no matter how much black you have in you. If you don't have 
pale white skin and fit in with the rest of the group, the troupe, then um, you're going to be seen as other. And I know that so many dancers of color have experienced it being, you know, really in their face. Um, but for me, it was more of just the excuses of, of why, um, of course, things were being said behind closed doors. The first time American Ballet Theater filmed the ballet at Swan Lake, um, and I was removed from the casting for being in the second act because I would have kind of ruined the aesthetic, that's what's said, by being the only brown person um, in a, to, you know, the line of corps de ballet dancers. Dancers of color are often cast as these earthy, over-sexualized characters and never seen as soft, never seen as um, as ethereal. You know, that's why it was such a big deal when I was cast as the Swan in Swan Lake or, you know, Juliet um, in Romeo and Juliet because Black dancers are never seen as given an opportunity to be romantic, um, to have healthy relationships. And it's been a long journey of building... I don't want to say a case, but building this path for me that's been for it to be undeniable for me to be given these roles, which is why I was given them all literally thrust like 10 leading roles for my first time the same season I was promoted to principal dancer at 32. And I think that speaks volumes to the fact that I was denied roles based on the color of my skin. Given that there is, you know, there is a very clear aesthetic, it's not an aesthetic they can't change. Are there roles where you would say, actually, no, I think I shouldn't dance a particular role because I do think this role, there is something, would be something jarring about having a person of a certain ethnicity? Or do you think we just now have to sort of say, look, we're going to be colourblind about casting. Casting directors are just going to have to step up to that in the theatre, in ballet, in opera. I think that... What's so incredible about ballet and why I think it's survived for as long as it has is not because of these kind of racist, sexist things that have come about. It's because the purity of the technique, which sees no color. They're they're really representing the world. You know, you think of La Bayadere in India and you think of Don Quixote in Spain. So why are all of these roles being danced by white women and white men? It doesn't add up. So when they say that you have to look a certain way to portray these roles, you know, a swan is not a white woman. We're creating a character. So art is fantasy, I think. It's beautiful escape. What's so incredible and what's so difficult about it is convincing the audience that you're something you're not. So nothing would be off limits on that way of looking at it. You would be asking, I should put words in your mouth, but for an imaginative leap. I, yes. (laughs) Nothing should be off limits. You know, these are the arguments that a black woman can't portray a sylph. What is a sylph? Well, how do you define that? A black woman can't portray the white swan. How do you define that? You know, none of it truly makes sense. Why is a black woman not capable of being a fairy? These are like mythical characters. They're not real people. Um, You know, again, if a white woman can or a white man can portray, um, you know, kind of this earthy black character and paint his face black, why can't a black person portray that role? It's just there, there are so many rules that have been bent that we really have to um, we ha- really have to open up this dialogue and really get to the root of it and address it. But would you feel uncomfortable because we would now find blackface in most forms of art or comedy or representation to be something reprehensible. And yet we have had a, roles in ballet that were 
conducted like that? Is that something that needs to disappear from ballet as well? Absolutely. It has slowly gone away for most companies, especially in America. But I think it was two years ago now that I ended up in, in a social media battle with, um, with the Bolshoi Ballet because they still do blackface in their version of La Bayadere. Yes, I, I was actually and thinking of that particular work when you were talking about that desire to have. And it's as, for yes. anyone who doesn't know this ballet, it's as, it's as yeah. kind of over-the-top luxurious as they come. I think it has an elephant at one point, doesn't it? I mean, exactly. But you, for you, that would be absolutely, you no. Know, and I'm sure, you know, the Bolshoi will have its, have its own response. But did you feel that was a battle or an argument, I should say, that you won? I don't know that anyone won, but I definitely brought attention to it. And um, if you want to be um, inclusive and you want the ballet to continue to be relevant, and I know that this is more of an issue in America, then you can't offend an entire community of people. Are there any works that are inherently a problem or challenging to that kind of liberal pluralist view either when it comes to diversity seen through ethnicity or perhaps to relations between men and women. Yes, there are definitely are certain ballets that I think that we should just stop doing. I think that, you know, we should have, you know, people should be able to go and, and see these historical versions of these ballets, but there are certain ballets that just aren't even relevant for who we are today. So to continue to do them, if there's such a, a, a hurtful part of history that continues to be replayed over and over again, I just don't see it as necessary. So what, what would be a ballet that you would take out of the repertoire? Uh, Les Corsaires. I think Les Corsaires is an easy one that we can remove because there are so many racial problems, sexist problems. You know, you, you have slaves that are being dragged around. You have women that are being sold. There are so many issues with it. There are so many ballets that have things here and there. And I know, for instance, ABT and, and, and other companies, but I would say mainly in America, have tried to tweak them here and there. But I just don't think that they're relevant to the times. You know, there, there are so many cultures that are already being represented to an extent, but they're not often positive and they're not often relevant to who we are in those cultures today. You've also uh, worked with another famous American in uh, President Obama. You were advising him on policy around fitness and also on reaching groups in terms of better body awareness who might not otherwise respond to that kind of public uh, health messaging. I mean, did you find the Obama years to be inspiring in a way that you think you can take forward for young Americans, particularly young Americans of colour, but not only, or something that, you know, we have then seen an abrupt reversal of a lot of those gains. So I wondered where you came out having met and worked with the former president yourself. As much as I see such a positive growth and change in the ballet world simply by my promotion, simply by seeing me on the stage in Swan Lake and, and in the Firebird as a black woman, it has changed the possibilities and opportunities and futures for so many dancers who see themselves through me. And that's what happened when President Obama became the first black president of the United States. And so for that, it gave America a second chance, a new life to see a future for an entire group of people 
America was built on our backs from slavery, and this was a new beginning. And so, you know, that none of that can be taken away. And you talked about athleticism and fitness as a sort of athleticism, I think almost with a, a kind of envy for the respect, it was a word that, that you used at the time, that an athlete gets. But that's a kind of tricky concept around ballet, isn't it? Because there's, there's always a tension within ballet between the athleticism and the artistry. Do you see that balance? Um, there is not one is not more important than the other. And you are we are both my reservations or why I've pushed that narrative is because especially in America, ballet is just kind of seen as frivolous. And we're not given the same respect again, as athletes are in America and athletes are, you know, put on this incredibly high pedestal. And so it's not that we are more athletes than we are our artists. It's just that I wanted to make that clear and to show that side of things because I think when people feel that they can relate to it and if you're not going to the theater and all you know of ballet is what's being shown in in some of these films where half the time the actresses aren't even dancers that's going to be your idea of what ballet is you've been backstage at the ballet I can assure you the 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 exertion and should we say the light perspiration (gasps) Misty is is quite something isn't it it's it's a bit like a horse race yes as we come towards our our conclusion, we started out talking about your early life before ballet and, and childhood. And we, we can't really leave you without asking for any Christmas memories of ballet from that time. I'd like you to name a favourite and then I have one more question or perhaps challenge to it. Go ahead. Okay. Um, my, my best memories, I think, are going home. American Ballet Theater has performed the Nutcracker for most of the time in Orange County. As professional dancers know, because we commit to doing the Nutcracker every from childhood and throughout our professional life, we don't often spend that time with our family. So for me to be able to go home during Christmas time to California, where my family is, and perform for them, those are the best memories for me. And of course, you've been in Swan Lake, which uh, alternates. Some of us have a mild preference for Swan Lake. You've, you've once said of Swan Lake, it's incredible to be a brown swan dancing in Swan Lake. So I just wondered if you had an ideal casting for one of your favorite ballets and I think alive or dead it is Christmas after all okay I would love to see Raven Wilkinson perform the lead in Les Sulfides perform the lead in Swan Lake I just think that someone like her was never given true opportunities to see her fullest potential because she was a black woman in the 1950s dancing classical dance that would be my dream to see she's cast Misty Copeland thank you very much for joining us Thank you so much. (laughs) I'd like to know if you agree with Misty that there are certain ballets we should just stop doing because they feature particularly racist or sexist tropes. Or do we see them as part of our history that we should engage with in all our art forms? I do wonder what would have happened to opera's Don Giovanni in the Me Too era. The fires of hell, perhaps. Write to us at radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. For more festive reads, do check out our big holiday issue. And a subscription is a great last minute gift. You knew I was going to say that. It's nonetheless true. And for our best introductory offer, well, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. 
Thanks for listening to The Economist Asks and wishing you very happy holidays indeed. I'm off now to watch a digital performance of The Nutcracker with a glass of sherry on the side. And thanks to our star producers this year, Rosie Pye, Amika Nolan and executive producer Sandra Shmueli. They're all permanently on their toes. See you in 2021. I'm Anne McElvoy. It's been lovely spending the year with you. And in London... This is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.